We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a It's time for a half-assed Friday podcast, but I promise you this, it will be at least as long as it took me to read the KSE article in The Athletic. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Kabak Man, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, big, long, excellent read on uh, KSE and Stan and the ownership situation at Arsenal in The Athletic. Uh, and a credit to James and David Ornstein. I think Amy Lawrence was involved in that. Uh, as usual, excellent journalism from them. But we'll sort of discuss our reaction to it. <laughs> this is going to shock you. My reaction slightly less uh, positive in in nature than Clive's reaction. I know that will surprise you, but we're not going to start with that. We're going to start with um, a little bit of, of recapping what happened over the window, who's fit, who can play, Arteta's pre-match presser in the Leeds game. So we'll do that first and then put you to sleep with a little ownership debate uh, towards the back end of the pod. Just a quick Friday roundup before the football is finally back. This uh, seven-month interlull was, uh, was an excellent one, and we are happy to have club football back. Uh, I will let you know, if you want to start Transfer Frenzy early, there is Dominic Sobislai, uh news in the Athletic article. Seems he is a real target. And uh, that has not been jinxed by the fact that we did a video scouting session of him, Clive and myself. Uh, Clive did, and I was along for the ride, on the Patreon. Please sign up and watch it, because you will see a really interesting, exciting, uh, just-turned-20-year-old kid who's a lot bigger than I was expecting, honestly, and... and uh, we did a full scouting session of him so you can watch him, like him, and then be dismayed when we do not get him in January. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Um, Clive, unfortunately, my 1970s internet is 
uh, not working great, so I'm going to kill my video so that our sound is not impacted. We do this on video so that we can see each other. We find that it leads to a healthier conversation as opposed to just hearing the annoying voices of one another who we want to uh, debate and discuss and disagree with. But now I can't see Clive's face so we can really get nasty. So Clive, uh, let's start just first with a recap of the window. and uh, Not the window. The window is coming, even though it feels like one just ended. Uh, let's recap the... Um, Interlull, that's it. That's the thing we're just getting out of. And I, I think the biggest thing to discuss is just the way the minutes were portioned out for, for various players. So a lot of minutes put into some legs. Uh, in particular, uh, Kieran Tierney, Bukayo Saka played, played a hell of a lot. Um, how do you feel about sort of the way these players were used and the extent to which Arteta has to make some challenging choices for the Leeds game um, in light of, of, of how some of those players were overused, you might say, during the international break? Yeah, I think it's it's a broad conversation, really, not just about our players' minutes. It's just about how Premier League players, and particularly the players that are in European competitions, how they're being treated. And I've got to be honest with you, I think it's a disgrace. I really do. I don't think the way we're treating players, particularly, and I agree with Arte 100%, the mental impact of playing football to that level is massive. And, and I can hear people saying, well, Clive, they get paid 100 grand a week, blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you now, I've, I've, you know, I've seen young players trying to get, you know, scholarships and things like that, really close up, and how much involvement there is, how much, it, how all-consuming the game is. Every single training session, every bit of coach feedback, it's just huge. It's a huge mental pressure. You've got people around you that are just as good as you, fighting for every single minute. And it's just massive. Then you bring that into a game situation, you've got to do it all again. Then you bring in social media, you, got to, you have to think about reaction to that. And this happens every three days. There just needs to be time to decompress. And it just isn't any time. And no one's giving anything up. You know, no, there's FA Cup still there, you know, League Cup still there, European competitions are still there, even though there's a pandemic on. You're flying around Europe for you. Friendlies. I mean, what we what are we doing to each other? I mean, it's absolutely shocking. And then you got the teams lower down the league, like the Sheffield United, and they're saying, "Well, we're not going to allow five subs because that disadvantages us. We don't care about those guys." So self interest pervades all over the game. And then we get a situation where you know the England manager loses a couple of players, and we got a 19 year old kid playing 200 plus minutes on the left hand side, running up and down. And we're all looking at our Arsenal fans, thinking, "Oh, please, 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 don't get injured." We watched Jack Wilshere get over overplayed. Look what happened to him, 27, mm. 28, and he hasn't got a club. We're all thinking the same things, right? Kiratini, we didn't see him for a year due to sort of pelvic issues, you know, and, and Scotland played him for two nine minutes plus one twenty minutes. Bang. Don't give a shit. Send him back. Deal with it. You know what I mean, it's like there needs to be there needs to be some form of change to how we're treating players. I mean you know, I know you're, you've got a, you know, from the US side of things, I've been looking at old Clay Thompson get injured, about to miss his second full year in a very short career. And that may not be due to overplaying, but his previous seasons he played went off to the final three or four times on a, in, in, in concession, sorry, consecutively. And these things have an impact. And so when you have such a short window in the career, I think it's so important how we treat players and and that's across many sports, but hey, we care about Arsenal. It's, it's, it's definitely a wave this weekend. Yeah, it is It is tricky, I think, balancing this. Because look, I understand the people that say, hey, look, international football is important. Um, 
it's part of the sort of grassroots fundamental foundation of the game. It's part of the heart and soul of the game. And, you know, there wouldn't be the interest in club football without international football. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I have a complicated relationship with international football because admittedly, I love the World Cup, but also like the nation I am a citizen of is not particularly good at the sport we call football, though a lot of bright young talent in the team right now. That's another issue. But it, it's just sort of like, look, I'm a club over country person. But I think the real challenge is for the clubs themselves. I mean, if you say I'm going to spend potentially 72 million pounds to acquire the right to then sign a player to a multi-hundred-thousand-pound-per-week contract, a 10, 15, 20 million-pound-a-year contract, and have an outlay of potentially more than 120, 130 million pounds on a player, and potentially lose the services of that player when they go off to play for someone who is not responsible for that compensation, and potentially miss months or even years of their, of their career. I mean, Jack Wilshere, you could argue, his career was destroyed by England, not by Arsenal. And it is easy to see how there is a conflict of interest there and a conflict of interest that I think is difficult to resolve um, in light of the vast amount of money that is spent by clubs for the services of these players. So having said that and getting all that sort of lecture out of the way, I mean, it does pose a problem for Arteta. And I think Arteta already has, you know, a squad rotation issue to consider. And now it's complicated by the minutes that were put into these legs. I mean, for me, Clive... I don't think Tierney should play. I don't know that I think Saka should play. But we are not a very good team. I don't know if you're aware of this. And uh, we're not in a particularly smashing run of form. Well, we, so, like, we've lost, we've lost four of our last six, right? And hmm. and our and our two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand pound a week centre forward spent a night on the airport floor as a thirty-one year old. I mean, the problems are just there around the corner, aren't they? It feels like, and um, we're just not too sure <laughs> what what we're going to do. Is it? Is it? You know, I said to a little note out the other day saying I was expecting 1982 Brazil to appear in the Arsenal <laughs> lineup, but actually, <laughs> I just want 11 players that can actually run and not get injured. That's what I want this weekend. And if we can steal a 1 0, that'd be wonderful. Mm. Meanwhile, the U23 is playing. They have a four person bench because we have masterfully managed our squad, uh, Saliba and Socrates starting there while meanwhile Arteta bigs up the improvement he has seen in Cedric the change has been incredible I tweeted yes the change has been incredible he's gone from worse to much worse um I'm joking but uh I quite like Cedric no, oh well joking. hey we're all entitled to our opinions <laughs> I'm even only bad saying ones. that to wind uh, yeah I'm only saying do. that to wind you up. <laughs> I, I'm in no mood for Cedric talk but so I mean do you do you have thoughts on how he should select this weekend's team and with an eye towards what's ahead. I mean, Leeds is a very challenging game. We're not far from a North London derby ahead. I mean, it is, it is difficult. What do you think? Yeah. So I, I sort of liken Leeds to almost like a, I don't mean no disrespect, almost like a budget Leicester, quite you know, young, vibrant, very sprinty, quite, they move very quickly up and down the pitch. And, you know, a lot of what I look at what he's trying to do and he, I think he transfers his players very quickly from zone to zone, looking to create overloads in those zones. It's almost like we want to get to that zone to support our players quicker than you get there. So it's a series of races, series of presses, series of tackles, series of recoveries. And that works as long as they can keep moving. And then, But they do leave themselves a little bit open. I think their right-hand side, one of their right-hand side players is an ex-Arsenal player called Luke Ayling, 
It was part of our, well, I think it might be our last FA Youth Cup team, winning team, which is back 2009, I believe. And he is a player, funny enough, because he left Arsenal. I think he went to Yeovil. I think he went to Plymouth, I think he was. He ended up coming up, maybe one of the Bristol teams. He ended up coming up, back up the Leeds through Leeds, through Leeds. And he's a player that I've always looked at because I always thought he was unfortunate to be sort of, end, his time ended at Arsenal. And, He's now a major part of their team and they very much use him in a progressive way on the right-hand side and attack with real ferocity on that side. And, and fair enough, that's our strong side. So that's going to be interesting to see what happens. You know, if I'm if I'm Arteta this week, I might not move um, Yang just yet to try to keep them pinned back on that side. But, but hey, I think it's going to be a running race. I really feel that. Mm. It's going to be a running race. And I would pick the quickest team that we could possibly pick, which is really good because we can see Tobias and Shaka in centre of our midfield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and well, so there's no party. There's no the El Nenny. <laughs> I mean, Tobias and, and, and David Luiz try, tried to put each other in the hospital with their with their huge bust up. I mean, do, do you have thoughts on that, by the way? I mean, since since I just brought it up out of, out of a joke, I mean, there was reporting that um they got into a bit of a scrap in training. You know, it's funny. My I tend to be hysterical about things. I don't have the slightest problem with this. I feel like at the highest level of sport, you know, these these things happen. You know, it just it is what it is, and players yeah. um, players get in fights. Like it, it's you know the the competitive level is high, and players get in fights. I think what what I think is the problem is a sort of ad hoc reaction to these sorts of things because you know Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah got in a fight because. So I didn't give him the ball when he was open once and nobody said boo about it because they're winning titles and champions leagues. I think culture is a narrative we apply to teams based on what's happening on the pitch. So a team that is winning a scrap like this in training just shows what a fiery competitive environment there is at Arsenal. And when a team is losing, it can be portrayed as the the toxicity of a club in decline. In general, I think this is the shit that happens at every club and I, I wouldn't look too much beyond that. Yeah, I think it, I think when Man's before Man City or Man United, I'm not sure which one, before they moved their training ground, a lot of their training sessions were open, weren't they? And they could be filmed from the street, and there were fights every two minutes. <laughs> yep. And um, uh, I've seen situations where players actually taking out the other player in their position, literally. You know, so um, these things just happen, and it's just just par for the course. And um, it is a highly intense competitive environment. But the interesting stuff that happens on the pitch is slightly different, I feel. I think that's players protecting their numbers and their stats. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they do care. Trust me, they care. You know, their agents bring those numbers in when they negotiate new contracts. Right? That's what's happening these days. So, But when you see it in training, that's just a competitive environment. And the stuff that, when they send out those lovely videos, which we all love to watch, that's the nice pattern play shooting, finishing, nice stuff. Then they have their real intense stuff, their eight v eights, it's proper stuff, and you don't see those videos come out, mate. Trust me, mm. <laughs> I bet there's slide tackles and all sorts going on. So, um, path of the course, hit it, move on. Yeah, I, I, I feel exactly the same way. I, I just think, like, you know, look, we are we are in a situation right now where we're sort of searching for the right answers. All of us, we're proposing. Uh, formations we could use. We're pr- proposing systems that might work and, and players that could go into this position. I, I I I wouldn't say that I've had a lot of sympathy for Arteta in the sense that I, I think I've been willing to be critical of some of the choices he's made. Now, I think he has made mistakes. I have some sympathy for him this weekend because 
it might have been a weekend to make big change. We were saying in our podcast previously, the Leeds lineup is going to be fascinating. Because mm-hmm. now is the time to see if Arteta has seen the problems and make some changes. But what does he do? He might have wanted to move Aubameyang Central, but he probably can't start Saka. So he probably doesn't have a player he'd love to start on the left. So he might have to start Aubameyang on the left. He doesn't have the midfield he might want to employ that could have moved to a midfield three because it doesn't have Party or El Nenny, which presumably yeah. would be the double pivot behind maybe a, a, a person occupying a more advanced role. So, you know, he, he may not be able to start Tierney, which means he'll be even more reluctant to go to a back four because he doesn't have the left back he'd want to play if he was in a back four. So unfortunately, like all of these changes we might have seen, go to a back four, use Tierney in his more natural position, move Aubameyang central so you can have Saka more as a wide forward. Like if he doesn't play Tierney and Saka, which he may anyway, but I, I think that's dangerous. And if he doesn't have party in yeah. Elneny, I mean, Clive, the, the, the thing that kind of sucks for Arteta is I think by virtue of what happened over this break and injuries and fatigue, he may be sort of stuck doing the same kind of stuff for this game that he might have wanted yeah. to get away from under other circumstances. Yeah, so we look at we look at the game, the next game. We we focus on that very much. Mm. Whereas I think the club thinking, well, you know what, I think we've got another game next week. We've got a chance to – they've got a second team, no problem. They've got so many people in the squad. They can find a second team for Thursday night. I think it's Mulder away. And, um, and so next Sunday's game comes along. And there's so many games coming up over Christmas. It's probably the reason why they're not playing party full stop. There's just too many games. They can't afford to have him miss a month because in a month you might miss nine games or something stupid like that. Do you know what I mean? So, and so by waiting next week, they get in for those games. And I think we just, I do believe massively, Elliot, that the team that manages their injuries the best is really going to progress. And I know we, we've got a very lumpy, experienced, overpaid squad and we haven't really loaned out too many youngsters. But this might be the year to keep everybody at home, do you know what I mean? Just to see what happens. And those under 23 games, they're really quite important to make sure these players are getting minutes. So when they come in, they can perform at the level we expect them to perform at. Because the prem- because of the way the Premiership squads are, because of the free subs rule, and people are saying, oh my God, the players, are- why do they want five subs? They're not even using three subs. There's a reason for that. You don't use three subs because when you get an injury, you end up with 10 men. So you have two, mm. you keep one in your pocket, you might put them for last minute, you don't use them at all. If you have five subs, you're more likely going to lose three or four every game. And that's the sort of turnover that you need. You, you might not use five every game. And this is what we've got to think about, but obviously I've I'm, I'm been saying this for a while and I like that rule. But yeah, the team that has a healthy squad, mate, is going to go far, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, you know my opinion. I I have never been a big believer in squad. You know, I'm a believer in the starting 11, and I I believe in a stars and scrubs approach to football in large part because of something that you've put forward, Clive, which is I think the distribution of talent in football is a long-tailed distribution. But I think the majority of players in professional football are clustered in a very tight range of ability. That 80% of the players are within about 5% of ability. You know, they're all sort of close. Application matters, and are they used in their best way? You know, Mohamed Elneny can look like a bad player or a good player, depending on how you use him. Lucas Torreira is another example. But I think they're all in a range of talent. Then you get to players like Messi, Ronaldo, Mbappe, Holland, De Bruyne, you know, Aubameyang, if you want to put him in there. Players who are out on the tail end of the distribution who are excellent. And so I think you need a few players that are out on the tail end of the distribution. If it's Liverpool, for example, like a... Mane, Salah, Alexander-Arnold. 
And then you need a bunch of players who are in the middle of the distribution who are deployed appropriately. But I'm going to undermine my point in this one case simply because of this. I think the COVID situation and the com- the compact schedule and the closeness of last season to this season means the minutes being put in the legs and the challenges for players to just be able to play week in, week out is trickier. And you are going to naturally use more play. Like There are lots of studies that have been done. The teams that win titles tend not to use a lot of players. They tend to have relatively few major injuries and they use a small cluster of players for the season. I think that's going to be more difficult. Look at Liverpool. They're, they're struggling massively in that department already. So yes, I, I do think that it'll be important to use the squad. And, and my normal theory, which is I don't care about the squad, get that first 11 right. I don't know if you're going to yeah. be able to live that way this season. I tell you what, mate, you, you, way you've explained that is really good. But when you said the word normal theory, mm. I, this is what I am throwing away this year. All normality and normal theories by which we live by and look at football by, throw them away. It doesn't matter anymore. We're in a situation where we're watching football matches now for months with no crowds. Yeah. Right? We've got a situation where I can see some of these players walking out. I mean, the higher up you go in football, the, what you actually go, one of the best things you, when you go up the leagues, from non-league all the way up the leagues, the higher up you go, the more people want to watch you. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a reward. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you get to the Premier League, the thing about the Premier League is that every single stadium is full up. You don't find that anywhere else in Europe. So you get to the top level, and for months on months, you've got no one to perform in front of. I mean, imagine how that feels. Mm. And you've got the situation where you're doing that and you're traveling abroad to do that. You're staying in hotels to do that. You can't go and see your families. You can't go out for a meal. You can't decompress that way. Everything we've ever seen, throw it away. Just throw it away and trudge through this year and think, how can we get through these games? And this is why I think the game is becoming more formulaic. It's becoming, because all we can see is the football and the coaches and the data. And we're throwing ourselves into this. And then, then we're trying to apply our, our previous historic structures of how we look at the game. You can't. You've got to literally that. look at it and say, okay, what, what have I seen today? Mm-hmm. What have I seen? Okay, what does that mean? That's interesting. Why has that happened? You've almost got to just scrub away your previous analysis. All the stuff you've built up over these years, throw it, chuck it, because... This is a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, <laughs> season that um, we're never going to see repeated. And we just need to use this as a, for Arsenal as a foundation stone, which is really difficult to lay foundations in this environment. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I, you know, I mean, I, it, it still leaves us with a challenge. I mean, before we move on to the, the KSE article in The Athletic and, and a little bit about the ownership um, on a quick-moving Friday podcast, uh, do you have a feel for what he will do in this Leeds game and, and what, what will happen with it? I mean, I, I'm I'm nervous because I think that they are a team that, I'm not saying they're better than us because I don't believe they are, but they're a team that seems right now like they are clicking in terms of knowing what they want to do, having a system that they're committed to. Bielsa's been there a while now, and it looks like he's at, you know, Bielsa's interesting, right? Because sometimes his stuff works brilliantly for a while then just implodes and he leaves in disaster. But right now, they seem yeah. to be at that sort of peak moment in the Bielsa experience where his system really seems to be getting the most out of the players. Yeah. So I, I would love to see Arsenal play, you know, a four-two-three-one in this game. Mm. But I would, you know, I, I'll see the back four. I'd have David Luiz back straight away because I just think he's smart. Um, Gabriel, 
I don't, you know, my views on um, on Hector Bellerin. I, I think he's he's be fine. He's rested. I don't mind Maitland-Niles, but I think he needs to work a few things out, in my opinion, mm. in regard to his attitude and his um, application. I still think he's been a bit cool for school. He's not really saying to to people, pick me, by by working hard. He's just just going through it. Um, so a back four, Tierney left, and I would have, and I would. We, we're looking at Tobias and Shaka really the experienced players they have to play and and I would seriously think about playing Joe Willock ahead of them I would seriously think about it and the reason why I would do that Elliot is because I just feel when Lees break and push and press and then we get through them we need to arrive we need to arrive into those mm. danger areas with numbers with people who want to get there you know, and I think we got to take advantage of the spaces that they give us. I think they conceded four against um, Crystal Palace last time. They're unfortunate again. I think Bamford disallowed goal. I think they might have conceded four to Leicester in the previous game. So there's moments there for us if we push into those areas. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. um, and and I just think Joe Willock is that type to do, it. and that's what I would do. I would surprise them. Four two three one. Keep your base. But I would go over front for Diamond and I would really go for those gaps and Pepe on the right and, and Saka on the left until Saka runs out of legs. And I'll you know, do something like, you know, bring a Maitland Niles in or something like that just to keep the energy high, you know? So that's what I would do. But hey, let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a game that we absolutely can win. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we can't, but it is a game that I, I think poses us a lot of challenges at a time that's very, very tricky. It, I think the Villa result in performance was a moment that had there not been an interlow would have led to a massive rethink about the way we were going about things. One thing that I think can happen with coaches sometimes when they have two weeks away from the game and it's not in the heat of the games and the players go away and get a little more quiet at the training ground is it like you can talk yourself into the fact that your ideas are actually still good and they just weren't being applied right. And you can kind of convince yourself that that was a bad moment, that that was a blow up, that that was an accident and that it won't happen again. Um, let's face it. Coaches are, uh, have big egos and they should, especially coaches that have been players. You have to at that level of the game and you don't employ an idea. You don't, you don't put a system in place because you think it's bad. You put it in place because you think it's good and it will work. And so I think it takes a lot for you to be convinced that your ideas are wrong or that your ideas need to be changed. And so I do wonder if he's going to do a lot of the same things in this game, both because of player availability and because of having had two weeks away to sort of convince himself again that actually, no, staying the course is the right move. Um, I do yeah. want to move on, but it sounds like you have a, a rejoinder today. Well, no, I just want to say, I was going to ask you, you know, do you think he's going to actually change? I mean... I don't. I, I'm, I'm not... I don't either. And, you know what? I'm actually secretly... I'm sort of pleased about that. I don't want him to change on a moment of a, of a bad moment. I want him to make us do stuff better. See what I mean? I want us to be a little bit more aggressive where we need to be and I want us to hold each other more to account on our, on our security and retention of the ball if people are not showing for the ball then then sort it out do you know what I mean because what we a lot of what we do isn't bad we just don't do it very well and often enough you know and we're a little bit slow some of that's held, some of that's in the players some of that's you know some of that's um, maybe an emphasis in the coaching but I don't expect him to change it too much. I love some of the stuff he's doing. I love some of the shapes he's putting. I love the hybrid nature of, of this team. 
and I, you know, I've learned so much from him. I've said it before. I just this is, and I don't see many of this happening anywhere else. By the way, I think he's he's got some proper unique stuff going on. But we, if some of it falls down to our quality, Elliot. So of course, I hope that's always going to be the case. But did did, did yeah. you see? I retweeted. There's a really really good. Um, data visualization, I guess you would call it. I, I never know what to call these things, but you know, it, it's a graphic. And it it's um Obamiang it, it Tom Warville did it and and he oh, yeah. uh he had a, a map and what it showed it's Pierre Emerick Obamiang's touches on the ball and how they've changed from the nineteen twenty season. Not nineteen twenty. He wasn't alive in nineteen twenty, the twenty nineteen, twenty twenty season, to the current season. And what it shows is that his touches uh and, and this is Touches per 90. So his touches in the central space, the sorry, yeah. his touches in the box are I'm down. I'm looking at it right now. Right. I have to ask Tom to explain right. it to so me. So here's right. what it is. His touches are down in the left wing attacking third. They're massively down in the box. They're down in the right wing attacking third. And they're down in the central space um, of the opposition half. They are massively up in the left wing middle third and the left wing defensive third. So the basically what it's showing is Obamiang this season is a deep lying left sided midfielder and not a wide forward. I mean I'm joking but yeah. but it, it is a great visualization of how his role this season without the system changing has changed. And I, you know, I hate to bring up Paul's tube of toothpaste analogy, but it, it you know, he has a point and I've been saying it as well. Everything has to move up the pitch. And if you look at the spaces Obamiang's occupying in that map and that uh, visualization, if they were just pushed up 15 yards, it would be right back to where we need him to be. So, you know, Clive, I don't know if our issue is progression, but you do not want him occupying the spaces that that map shows him occupying. Yeah, so yeah. We, we have a positional coach that's got our players in the wrong position, right? So he's got his zones filled, but he's got the wrong type of players in those zones on occasion, in my opinion. And I was hoping that the arrival of Gabriel and Saliba would push us up the pitch. That was my theory pushes up the pitch, and I was looking at, you know, I put my hand up, I wanted someone like a, you know, I wasn't against John Stones coming in, someone like that, a quick centre-back. I wanted this up the pitch. I, I didn't care who it was. I wanted this up the pitch, because once you get us up the pitch, that's where we need to be. And I was looking at, you know, a sweeper-keeper in David Rea, for example, which I was at the start of the season, because I recognised we had to get up the pitch. And... Now this this now I understand this girl. <laughs> and this mm. this tells us everything we need, isn't it? We're just not in the areas we need to be. And if you're a positional coach, if your coach looks at data, the stuff we've seen over the last two weeks is very difficult to ignore. It's impossible. And e even if you're not a data guy, by the way, like I'm not saying the only way you should analyze football is through the lens of data. But a good club should use the data and incorporate it into their video analysis and all the other things they're doing. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, uh, you know, it's... I like data for reflection, Elliot, do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you take a breather and you reflect and you look at a period of games and you say, this is, this is a great example of good data for me, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you look at data at the end of a game and I don't need to see it, do you know what I mean? But over three or four games, then what's the trend telling me? And this is... Brilliant comparison yeah. for that. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't need to link it. We don't need to link it on the podcast now. You know that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, and and you can check my um, 
you can check my Twitter feed as well. I know I've asked you to block me there, so you can unblock me, check my feed just for, or you know what? Don't do that. Keep me blocked. Go to Tom Warville's feed, and he's he's got it there. Um, so let, let's finish off with the athletic piece on KSE, and, and this could be a whole podcast in itself, but let's try to cap this around 10 or 15 minutes. The the piece is done by uh, James McNicholas, obviously, Gunner Blog, uh, David Ornstein, Amy Lawrence. It's excellent work. It's a very, very long read, um, but it details sort of how the, the there's a part of it that's sort of historical detailing how uh, KSE came to be involved in Arsenal. And I think that's less interesting to us at this point. I mean, I'm not saying it's less interesting to read, but in terms of where we're going, but there's a good chunk of it on how the structure is changing, uh, what their, their full ownership has meant for their approach. I think Clive, we're going to diverge in some ways on how we see what's reported there. Uh, obviously, but there's a couple little nuggets in there that are interesting to me. Do you want to first give me sort of your initial reaction to it and your, your initial takeaways from what they've reported? Yeah, so my first feeling when I read that this morning is <laughs> we're lucky to have those journalists from the, on the Appellate because um, we get some amazing coverage, in my opinion, from them. And and it, it's a timeline piece, really. And, and I've always felt, you know, from a... I look at Arsenal from a business perspective. I've always felt that things changed when the Conkeys came on board. This is the time to judge them. If anything, the problem with Arsenal has been when we had dual ownership. Then I felt that the club was allowed to drift while two billionaires were having a little bit of a, a standoff. And that tells you that certain people were using us as an investment opportunity and football was not first on their list. And that allowed the club to become bloated, allowed people to stay in jobs too long, allowed contracts to be handed out to their mates. And we're still recovering from that situation, in my opinion. So since the Conkeys have come on board, love them or not, and this article, I don't think it's designed to make you love them. It's designed to inform you about Arsenal's timeline and inform you around their involvement and maybe show them as people a little bit more than we've been led to believe that they're just not people, you know? So so for me, seeing, I'm always wanting to judge Arsenal based on that period when there was a single owner. I said before, why are you going to put, why are you going to put an extension on the house when you don't own it? Just clean the windows. Right, and that's what we were doing for eight nine years, and it's a terrible thing, right? But that's the truth. We were drifting, clean the windows, and our position in the game was taken over by Spurs, by Chelsea, by Man City, and suddenly we're in a scrap for the top six and under top four. So, so now we need to reset. And since since they've been, whether you like what they've done or not, at least we're trying. You know what I mean? And I felt before we weren't even trying. At least we're trying to do something. And yes, there's been mistakes. And yes, people have maybe taken advantage of the situation of perceived situation of absenteeism. But we're trying now. And it's, for me, it's, in, it's going in the right direction. And this piece really sort of wanted to show you the journey. And it mirrors a lot of my thoughts. So I liked it. While, but I'm not going to turn around and say and get a KSC hat tomorrow morning. That's not what he's trying to make you do. He's just trying to take you on the journey. That's how I read it. How did you feel? Okay, so I want to be clear. There are things in there that I'm encouraged by. I mean, the, the piece goes to great lengths to make us aware that KSC is engaged with and interested in what's happening at Arsenal. Um. There's also elements of the piece that, that make an effort to explain that funds have not been denied to the club for transfers that we wanted to make. So I want to be clear about something that I have always felt. 
I, or have, ne- have never felt. The opposite of always felt. Never felt. <laughs> I have never felt that the problem with KSE's ownership was economic. That they were financially holding us back. I know that that is not something that I can prove, and that is something that some people do feel, that from a pecuniary standpoint, KSE is bad for Arsenal. I do not feel that way particularly. I mean, we did buy Pepe for (laughs) all the money, thanks to Raul uh, driving that price up to the heavens. Um, You know, we did buy Aubameyang one window after buying Lacazette. We did hand out huge contracts to big star players, the contracts that, that are... The size of contracts you'd expect at a Manchester City or a United or a Barca or Madrid. That big, on par with that. Um, I think the the money is not the issue for me. The oversight is the issue. And this article sort of confirms for me, not that KSE are some incompetent buffoons, but just that simply their their closeness to the situation and the, the experts that they're putting in charge are unreliable. And there's a quote in it that I think sums it up for me. A former Arsenal staff member suggests, quote, the Cronkies are good owners as long as they have the right people running the club, unquote. And then this is added. If your philosophy entails giving absolute trust to your executives, it becomes all the more essential you make the right hires. And that to me has sort of been the story from day one, that the right hires would potentially lead us in the right direction. And unfortunately, in the post-Vanger era, and with Gazidis leaving, there were missteps. Raul was a major, major misstep. And he the damage he did, it's, it's hard to disentangle the damage he did and say it's purely Raul damage from what may be more related to KSE. I mean, there's, there's a point laid on here that's trying to be complimentary, I think, to KSE, saying that they entertained a presentation uh, from the Arsenal executives about wanting to go after Party, Awar, and Jorginho, and that it was all approved with installment agreement plans that were going to be done to do it, and the only one that they could wind up getting was Party. I would submit that any transfer strategy that felt those were the three targets we should be going for this summer was deeply flawed from a squad building standpoint. I've made my point about Thomas Party. He's a good player. I'm not going to go there again. Awar is a guy I desperately would have liked. I think we should have gone. Jorginho makes no sense to me. And I don't see how you can have a group that presents those three targets as your primary targets and say, see, well, I will say everything's I, fine. I, I, think Georgina, <laughs> I think I think Georgina was a backup option to party. I, was, I mm. will say that. And, but, yeah, I, I quite like the targets that we're going for these days. I've got to be honest with you. And I think 7am kickoff did a fantastic piece, just a little piece on the transfers. It's like 2015. And actually, the last window with Gabriel and Party is probably one of the better ones. You know, mm-hmm. we can say that now because it's still quite fresh. But you look back, mate, honestly, it's painful. I urge you to read it. Actually, I don't urge you to read it because you won't sleep. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's painful stuff. So we have a history of some very bad decisions and some very bad overpays. Almost, almost, and I still feel, you know, I almost don't want to relitigate it sometimes, but um, I, I do feel we're, we're heading in the right direction. You know, the players that we link with are really decent, you know, and um, the Awar one, you know, I know you're a huge fan of him and I think we're, I think we're more ready for him now, if that makes sense. Uh, I think we're more ready for him. We did a Slobazai one the other day. I really like him as a, a fixture up front where we can save, because we can play the ball into him and it sticks, you know, things I really want to see. Um, there's some, there's some talent developing there. And I got to be saying uh, that's happened in the last 
year or so that we've seen these type of names and and so that's a different model you know the refinancing it's a different model and you know getting rid of people like us farming i'm not being honest coming at it you know the rules you know the drill on him there's rumors about him for quite a while rumors about ralph for quite a while people are not staying around they're not very good you know what i mean and i i quite like it it's not it doesn't really wreak stability but it also doesn't wreak jobs for the boys that's what we had for many many years and people taking money and not doing anything right so be good or get out you know it'd be interesting to see we look a bit light at the moment interesting how those people are replaced but i'm not i just feel i'm not <laughs> i'm not a cheerleader but i can see the club doing something i didn't feel we were trying before you know and um i can see us doing something right now yeah yeah and i mean look it, it is on the one hand it is pure it is, it is encouraging purely that the the owners of the club are behind the club's efforts to go get the players they need, especially during a period, a COVID period, where we we know there's going to be a massive shortfall in revenue and a huge loss taken by the club, right? So, like, this is no longer about the self-sustaining model. Every penny we spend at this point is being spent, you know, in debt or owner support in, at some level, right? It's not coming out of profits because there's no profits. So, I, I would set that aside. I just think, look, you don't need to be the most profitable club in the world to be able to build something that looks successful. It helps. Mm. It helps to have Manchester City's money. But as Manchester United have proved, all the money in the world can can go nowhere fast if it's spent poorly. And so this article left me feeling that maybe KSE are a little more engaged than we think. But once again, it seems to come down to hires. I mean, the article sort of points out that Tim Lewis is now the guy, boots on the ground guy, to create the oversight yeah. that comes back to KSE. Well, Tim Lewis is is an Arsenal fan. I, I think that's been reported, and I think that's true. Yep. He's a partner at, at a law firm. Yep. He's not, not a football guy. I mean, in the sense, you know, I hate football guy, but I mean, like, you know, he's not he's not a data analyst. He's, he's not a scout. He's not... So how does a guy like Tim Lewis evaluate the efficiency with which we're working? I just think... You know, the, the article says they know that Adu is a little inexperienced in the European market and it's going to take time for him. Well, you've got Adu who's inexperienced in the European market and you've got Mikel Arteta who's literally a first-time coach who's now manager. And that's your team. And you've got a partner at a law firm overseeing the efficiency of that. And you've got guys in KSE who are an ocean away getting updates. And I just question whether that structure... And you've got a numbers guy as a CEO. Yeah, and well, you've got so... an accountant as a CEO. So, so, what, so what, <laughs> what, what do you think missing? So what do you think... What I mean, missing? what's missing in my view is, look, Sven Mislintat may be a long-haired hobo as far as some people are concerned, I understand. That He's a role, scout. though. He's a professional scout. That role. A, a data-driven director of football level person, even if he's not the necessarily Adu's boss or Adu's, uh, you know, Parallel. Like a Jason he Rosenberg, something yes, like that? Yes, but, and he's gone. I, someone in the club with modern... Con, sort of uh, progressive attitudes towards player recruitment and value-based recruitment who has a real audience with the decision makers who can be a different... Look, I'm not saying everything has to be data-driven. I know I, I beat this drum a lot, but it should be it should be a loud voice in the room. If you're not going to do it the you know the the as the exclusive approach, if value-based recruitment and, and data-driven recruitment is not your exclusive approach, I'm not saying it needs to be. It should be a loud voice in the room, especially helping people like Edu and, and Arteta who are 
really new at this. New at this in the European market in the case of Adu, and new at this period in Arteta's case. And look, I will admit that someone like Dominic Sobosly, that looks like a pretty clever kind of move. You know, a young player with a lot of talent um, that seems to be gettable at a reasonable value. I think, obviously, Gabriel was a really good move. It's it's also in the article, I think, Clive, one thing that does reassure me a little bit is that the the club was sort of aware that we were going down a murky road with the Marie uh, Pablo Marie deal, with the Cedric deal, with the David Luiz deal, with the William deal. They, they say that in the article. Uh, not William, sorry. That was one that, that Arteta did push for, but Cedric, Pablo Marie, and, and, and David Luiz. And that by the time they were ready to get rid of Raul, they felt that they were already committed to those moves and they had to follow through with them. That's sort of encouraging because it suggests that some of the moves that I would put in, into the group of it doesn't make any sense to me can be put in the Raul basket and that basket can be floated down the river for, and over the yeah. over the waterfall and that 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 sort of makes me feel a little better if that makes sense. I think yeah, it, it does and I think some of those deals they are questionable but they they're not going to bankrupt us. Do you know what I mean? The one, frankly enough, the one that really is a Pepe one really. That's the one where, you know, suddenly Napoli put in an 80 million bid, did they? And we're paying 20, 30 million over the price. You know, okay, the installments are like 15 years, but it's still a lot of money. Um, the most encouraging line for me Elliot, is when, when also they got Emery in, and you can imagine the fear going across the club. 22 years with one guy doing everything. And suddenly Raul's there and he's thinking, we need to get a guy in. And they end up falling on Emery. And I just think Emery was always a one, two year appointment. You know my views on him. He was just the next guy. We needed we needed that guy, and um, he nearly got to the Champions League, blew it, right? So, but the next time they went to look at it, they asked themselves a the question. The line that came up it says, "We want to look at a manager for the next three to five years," and that to me feels like an Arsenal type line. Do you know what I mean? That's that's what we like. We we're not like Chelsea. It's not one two year job and get rid of them, pay them off forty million, and then start again. We can't afford to make those type of mistakes, right? So so it, it looks as though there's something there they're trying to build from a three to five year period. And I quite like that. With a young guy, the youngest manager in the league, a lot of young people around him. We, it's a bit edgy because they're all new. They're all doing it for the first time. But I'm prepared to sort of go with it. You know, I'm prepared to go with it rather than to having people with, you know, with maybe a, a greater track record. But what does it mean? Emery had a track record. If you're in the wrong room and you don't fit that room, it doesn't matter. You might be a good person, a good coach. I'm sure Raul had a, a, was good at one day when he was working for Nike and Barcelona. But for Arsenal, he didn't quite fit. He didn't fit the club we are. I look at these people now, in Edu and Arteta, and I think they fit. I would like, you know, I said originally I think it'd be good to have a data guy as a, the third leg in the chair. I'm starting to think maybe slightly differently. I'm starting to think, well, actually, does a data guy need to be a a loud noise? Keep it quiet. Do your work in the background, right? Because otherwise, as soon as you make a bad sign, that guy gets a kick in. Just stay quiet. Stay invisible. I'm starting to wonder if a we need to support the Edu Arteta with a, I want to say his name, I might get it wrong, with a, a Ralph Rangnick type. You know what I mean? A real somebody like that, an elder statesman that's got a track record in Europe knows all the different coaches, knows all the different management that can really open the front doors for us in these clubs, you know, and I think we might miss that type to really support Edu. And you know? I think I think that's a key thing. Edu is, is developing, Arteta's developing, 
Um, Arteta's evidence is on the pitch. We can judge him by what he does on a coaching perspective. Edu, we judge off the pitch with recruitment. And I think that's more of a collective thing. And we don't know that whole team. Do we need to? Not so sure. But that's why I think that there's somebody missing there. That's why I asked you the question. I'm just not quite sure what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's the thing that I think ultimately comes back to KSE is that quote that I started with, which is that they're good owners if they hire well. I think that's true for mm. most owners. I, you know, I think it's very rarely the case that an owner who is day-to-day involved in tinkering does a good job. I actually think those owners tend to make things a lot worse, actually. Yeah. But there is a fine line between uh, clever and stupid, as Spinal Tap once said, and to that point, like there's a fine line between delegating authority fully and then having no oversight over the delegation and delegating authority to the point that you keep an eye on it. But it's also the point of like, delegating authority appropriately. And I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with Adu being at the club and Arteta being at the club. I just would say what you said, Clive, which is that like, there may be some pieces missing and the cumulative experience and knowledge about football in the football marketplace running the club right now seems mm. a little insufficient to me. I don't mean knowledge about football, like experience in the game. Adu has tons of it. Arteta has tons of it. I'm saying that like, Vinay is a numbers guy. Adu is new to the European market. Arteta's new period. Tim Lewis is a lawyer, you know, like, uh, and hey, I was a lawyer too. And and I know fuck all about football, so we have a lot in common. But like, you know, my, my point is, I don't have a problem with any of those individuals, but I would say to your point, something is probably missing. And uh, having said that, they are looking at Dominic Sobersly. I do like that. And it really jives beautifully with the Patreon content we produced, which is the Dominic Sobersly scouting video that you should absolutely watch because Clive was brilliant in it and Dominic was quite brilliant in it and I want to thank him for his participation in that as well. And the dog is quite brilliant in this podcast and that'll wrap it up. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Score prediction this weekend? I'll take a 1-0, mate. Seriously, I'll just take a 1-0. I want to I wanna get some serenity back in the club. A 1-0 win. So you can breathe, get some healthy bodies back, and say, right, what are we going to do? So just get the points, get on the bus. I hear where you're coming from, but give me a smooth 4-3. That's what I want. 4-3 victory Arsenal. Just a nice, easy Aubameyang Hall. That's it. Get him in the central spaces. Watch him score four goals. 4-3 to the Arsenal. Easy peasy. Uh, And then we'll have an instant reaction pod that you might actually want to listen to. Wouldn't that be nice? So uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, We will definitely have a full panel in the future. I hope you're doing well. I know it's tough times for a lot of people right now. And wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope you're holding up okay. And uh, we are all in it together. And thankfully, the football is back to take our mind off some things and uh, hopefully bring us joy. Imagine if the football ever did that. Maybe this weekend. You never know. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Leeds nil. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. 
You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.